I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. 75 years ago last week, the United States Congress overrode President Harry Truman's veto and enacted the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947, better known as the Taft-Hartley Act. The law corrected imbalances of power among individual employees, employers, and labor unions that had emerged after passage of the original Wagner Act in 1935 that had culminated in the largest strike wave in American history from 1945 through 1946. The law restricted secondary boycotts and strikes targeting neutral businesses, authorized the National Labor Relations Board to hold unions accountable for unfair labor practices, and explicitly recognized states' powers to enact right-to-work laws that prohibit contract provisions requiring payment of union fees as a condition of employment. Joining me to celebrate the legacy of the Taft-Hartley Act and discuss where labor policy might be headed in the future is Mark Mix, president of the National Right-to-Work Legal Defense Foundation. Mark, I know we had you on a while ago. I think I think you came on to talk to us after the Janus oral argument back in 2018. Um, but can you let our listeners who might not be familiar with National Right to Work know what you guys do over there? Yeah, Michael. First of all, let me just say thank you to you for the work that you do in, in keeping track of labor policy. It's not one of the sexiest issues out there, but you have done a tremendous job through your Labor Watch newsletter and now the magazine uh, that you're so instrumental in putting out that uh, I'm a big fan of yours. I, I think I've sent you a couple thank you notes when you've written articles and other things about labor policy and, and just keeping people up to speed and making it understandable for most folks. So thank you for that work. And, and it's a real privilege to be on with you that. today and talk a little bit about uh, the Taft-Hartley Act. And, and let me do give you a quick little thumbnail sketch of the Right to Work organizations. We, uh, The Right to Work Committee, which is the legislative arm of our work, came around in 1955, shortly after Taft-Hartley, and, and it was basically designed to help promote and protect right to work laws that were being passed shortly after Taft-Hartley became law uh, when uh, President Truman's veto was overridden. And uh, five railway workers got together with some small businessmen, and they decided they wanted to fight force union dues and fees, and, and so the Right to Work Committee was born. In 1968, the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation came into existence, and today we have 22 staff attorneys that do nothing but defend individual employees when their rights are violated by that original Wagner Act back in 1935, upheld by the Supreme Court in 1937, that give union officials the power to have workers fired if they don't tender dues or fees as a condition of getting or keeping a job. And so the foundations argued 18 U.S. Supreme Court cases. Our latest victory was back, as you might mention, Michael, in 2018, the Janus decision that basically gave right-to-work protections to all government employees across the country. It said that no government employee anywhere in America can be forced to pay dues or fees in order to work for their government. They can't be forced to pay a union for the privilege of working for their government. It's a big victory, but as we'll talk about today, I'm sure we'll get into, there's still more, a lot more work to be done, not only even in the public sector that Janus, where that impacted workers in the public sector, but certainly in the private sector. And, and we're talking about the Taft-Hartley Act, which still governs the private sector labor management relations of all 50 states um, across the country. And it still includes that federal provision authorizing union officials to have people fired, except for that little section. 14b of the Taft-Hartley Act, which I'm sure you'll talk about. Right. Yeah. So let's so let's move on to uh, happy 75th to the Taft-Hartley Act. Um, you just mentioned 14b. Uh, is that one of the law's most important legacies? That's the provision that explicitly authorizes state-level right-to-work laws. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the ability for states to, by affirmative action, override the federal default to forced unionism is a pretty important part of the Taft-Hartley Act. Obviously, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, limiting, banning secondary boycotts is pretty important. Talking about uh, union campaign contributions, interestingly enough, in 1947, and talking about some other issues that were pretty important. The closed shop, for example, the idea that an employer could not demand that, or the union couldn't demand that the employer hire only union. Union members. I mean, remember before that we had the so-called yellow dog contract where the Congress outlawed the idea that, uh, you know, you couldn't be a union, an employer could discriminate against you. Right. But 14B for the right to work movement is really the seminal part of the Taft-Hartley Act in that it's a way for states and 27 states have done that, Michael, up to this point, And there's more work to be done, obviously, but basically saying, look, you can work, you can participate in the workplace, but you don't have to pay a private organization, i.e. a labor union, any dues or any fees in order to work in those 27 right-to-work states. So I guess uh, what, 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 makes, what is so important about a state having uh, a right-to-work provision? Yeah, well, Michael, it's it's twofold. I mean, first and foremost, the individual liberty question is one that is preeminent when we talk about right to work. The idea that, you know, in a country founded on this grand experiment in self-government with individual responsibility and individual rights, we wonder how it is that, you know, back in 1937, that the U.S. Supreme Court, where, you know, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes and Justice Owen Roberts switched their votes from 1933 and decided that the Wagner Act was constitutional, giving union officials these really some, unique some Powers. Some call it and, the switch in time that saved nine. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, it's kind of interesting. We're hearing about packing the court again. Uh, but that was when Roosevelt threatened to pack the court with six new, member, uh, six new justices and go to 15 so that the New Deal agenda could be rammed through both the House and the Senate. And then, of course, over the Supreme Court's uh, uh, opposition on constitutionality. But it's, it's really interesting when we think about how the federal government usurped all the state's rights when it came to labor policy. But the idea that the right to work laws exist as, you know, kind of contrary to our regular jurisprudence where federal law overrides state law in most instances and states don't have the power to basically say we're going to do it different than and federal and, law. And, and, 14 and, in the labor, and in the labor relations space, that's even more than in sort of normal law. The, the way the, the National Labor Relations Act works, it is, again, with the exception of the of 14b the right to work authorization it's pretty much the feds set the rules and everybody has to play by them yeah, exactly. And and you've written a lot about that, Michael, too. Um, but it's right. I mean, it's that one instance. And so right to work laws, first of all, from an individual freedom standpoint, is the primary objective of, of right to work. But secondarily, what we found in, and the evidence is getting more and more overwhelming all the time about the opportunities that right to work laws create. I mean, if you look at the 27 states that have right to work law protections, five new states just in the last 10 years, you find out that that's where manufacturing growth is. That's where private sector job growth is increasing dramatically. And we're opportunities for families to go and and you know build on the American dream is happening in those states that have right to work laws. It's no surprise, Michael, to you obviously, and may perhaps not to others listening in, but about 82 to 83 percent of all the automotive manufacturing business now occurs in right to work states. I mean, we're building cars in South Carolina and, and Mississippi and North Carolina and Alabama and Tennessee. Have said a lot about Elon Musk. I don't think it's a coincidence where he's opened his factories. I believe yeah. it. I believe yeah, interestingly in enough, 
<laughs> yeah, you know it's funny, Michael. I was I was driving down to work the other day in in Virginia on one of the highways, and I saw a Tesla with a personalized license plate that had the AFL-CIO moniker on it. So not everyone over at the AFL-CIO is opposed to Elon Musk, even though the White House decided not to invite him to the electric car symposium or meeting that uh, when he's responsible for 60% of the electric car ma- market share in the country. Not a surprise. Um, so obviously, you know, 14, 14B was a big deal. You know, the prohibition on secondary boycotts was a big deal. But what is the post Taft Hartley labor relations regime missing what 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 are what didn't go far enough yeah well you know i you know interestingly enough when the wagner act was passed it was really unbalanced it basically gave union officials dramatic new powers by federal decree and as you've noted michael i mean the number of strikes i think it in between 1945 and 1947 there were something like the equivalent of 4 million people out on strike in america i mean you know the that, steel that, workers that, the, that sounds right that that sounds right to me i, I i've committed to memory 10% of the workforce yeah, yeah. And, in, you know, John L. Lewis used that power in the coal industry and the United Auto Workers and Walter Ruther used that power up in Detroit. And, I mean, you know, I mean, so Ruther, the country Ruther was... Went, Ruther, went so, Ruther went so far, he wanted the ability to limit the prices of cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I think there was this pushback. And, and, Michael, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, Truman's veto gets all the press about 14B and the override, the votes were out, were amazing. I mean, 331 votes, I think, in the House on the override. Um, and that was that was a, a session, the 80th co- session of Congress, where I think only about 236 or well, 245 Republicans were. Yeah, I think, I think were, it was 245 Republicans, yeah. which means it needed Democratic support as well. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It got a tremendous amount of Democratic support, not only there in the House, but in the Senate as well. And, you know, there are some people that talk about Truman, you know, basically writing this veto message for his best friends in the in the organized labor movement. But he I think he understood it, too. And I think he knew he was going to be overridden based on the votes that occurred back in April and May on original passage, both in the House and the Senate and the conference committee. So, you know, when you think about what was done there, people would say that it balanced the scales. I don't necessarily think so. It didn't certainly do it for individual employees in a purse on a per se basis. It may given employers a little more protection, but when it comes down to it, what it, what it lacks. And I think what the, the, the result of the, of the Wagner act and the Taft Hartley act, and the national labor relations Act combined has turned out to be is really a clash between big business and big labor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's happened as we, as we kind of fleshed this out over the years through NLRB precedents and court precedents, we've realized that the individual employee that, you know, was so favorably and flowerly mentioned in the preamble of these bills uh, has been ignored. And it, it really is a contest between big labor and big business. And the individual employee, which was, I, I guess, the original idea of the whole thing, kind of has been left aside. So there's still a whole lot more work to be done and there. Especially given how involved in political advocacy, even outside of the economic space, labor unions I don't know. I guess I'll put I'll put this to you: Is were they always this way, or have they become this way over time? Well, you know, Michael, I find it fascinating that one part of the Taft Hartley Act was about campaign contributions. It basically outlawed corporate and union employee direct contributions to federal candidates or independent expenditures opposing or supporting candidates. That was back in 1947, before we had McCain-Feingold and Watergate and the FECA and all that other thing. So. Apparently, they were doing it in a major way back then, and I think they probably had as much clout and power from a financial standpoint uh, electorally as they they seem to have today. I mean, no one realizes it, but really the biggest power still 
in electoral politics at the federal level and at the state level ends up being government unions and private sector labor unions. They spend billions every two years on direct political and lobbying activity. And, you know, it was kind of something when, that came you, out of the chance. And then when you add in their contributions to advocacy groups, their, con- their support oh. for, uh, uh, you know, community, quote unquote, community organizing, that number just gets larger. Yeah, Michael, I mean, and your your group, CRC, has done an unbelievable job in uncovering the Arabella Associates and the money that's that tracks through the system, you know, that gets put in by the by the huge financiers and gets distributed to the, these other advocacy organizations. I mean, it dwarfs anything on the free enterprise side of, of the world when and, it comes and, and, to... And I, and I mean, and we see how closely networked organized labor is... Again, yeah. not only just through its contributions, but, you know, at the beginning of the Democracy Alliance, the big net, the big convening of left progressive donors, you know, the, the labor unions were there at the start and have been there since the start. Right. I, you guys uncovered that. I think that first meeting of the Democratic Alliance or whatever that was included, I don't know, four or five or six major union executives. And, you know, one of the things that's lost on that, Michael, not to you, but to rank and file workers is just how radical the leadership, the top bosses of the unions are when it comes to, you know, if you're an operating engineer uh, on the Keystone Pipeline, you're wondering why in the world your union endorsed Joe Biden when a week after he gets sworn in, he puts you on the unemployment line. I mean, that disconnect between rank and file workers and union officials is growing wider and wider all the time. And, you know, you guys at CRC are exposing that all the time, which is a good thing. We're trying to do it, but uh, you guys, your mission has has been much bigger and and really, really uh, has exposed that that flow of money for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no, thank you. We, we appreciate the kind words. Uh, so moving on uh, to the union's sort of response to, you know, even for all the powers that they still retain under the, uh, the National Labor Relations Act as Taft-Hartley amended it, uh, the unions have sought to repeal or gut it since it was passed. Where, you know, the, the PRO Act, my understanding, would basically eviscerate most of the good things in the Taft-Hartley Act is my understanding. Yeah, that's right. I think there's I think there's nine major points in the in the PRO Act, and number one on the list is repeal of Section 14B. You know, when we go out and start talking about this, Michael, you know, everyone goes, well, how in the world could the federal government repeal our state right-to-work law? Well, they need to understand that the right-to-work law, the privilege of passing a right-to-work law is granted by the federal government. And so by simply taking away Section 14B, we default back to that compulsory unionism structure that's written in to the Wagner Act and the, Nash- and the Taft-Hartley Act. And so the state States would no longer have the privilege, if you will, to pass right to work laws and free now, their workers. So, just to just for for our listeners, the unions, whenever you know uh, you guys or somebody who supports rights to work talks about rights to work, the unions come in and wave their fingers and say, "No, no, 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 no! You're just letting people free ride on the benefits of unionization." <laughs> uh, explain why that is a deficient explanation. Yeah, well, because what's happened is union officials have been granted the exclusive monopoly bargaining power over every worker in a workplace once they're certified by a majority of those voting in a union election. And let me show you how that manifests itself, Michael, because it's really important that people understand how this came about. 
there was a, a, a Supreme Court case in 1944 called uh, Louisville Nashville Railroad versus Steele, and I, I know you know about this, Michael. But it's a very interesting case because it created the Supreme Court was was confronted with this notion of union exclusive bargaining and the power that granted union officials over almost like a sovereign, if you will, over workers in a particular bargaining unit. And what happened in that case was in at the Louisville Nashville Railroad, the unions had gotten recognition, and they decided these white union officials decided they did not want to represent the black skin railway employees in that company. And they said, we're going to negotiate for everybody and everyone's going to get these benefits except for you guys with the, with the different colored skin. Well, the Supreme Court came back and looked at this and said, my goodness, you have power that's almost equal to government as it relates to all of the employees under this exclusive monopoly bargaining arrangement that you've been granted by Congress. And so if you're going to if you're going to give if you're going to get that privilege to represent and speak for everyone and stop anyone from talking to the boss unless you're present or stop anyone from settling a dispute with the boss unless you can you approve it, then you're going to have a duty of fair representation. That idea is you're going to have to represent represent everyone in the bargaining unit if you're going to maintain this privilege. That's that's the price of your monopoly. Exactly. Justice Alito cited it in the Janus decision, talking about the compensation, if you will, that unions get by getting monopoly bargaining status. He said that's really an amazing power, one that's really unequaled by anyone else in our, you know, in our jurisprudence. And and they're right about that. And so what happens, how it manifests itself, Michael, is that, for example, if the two of us get together and we vote for a union and John over here votes against the union, our two votes basically supersede his and we force him into this collective. And now he has to sit down and shut up and take whatever it is you and I decide or agree to in the workplace, and he can't do anything else on his own. So that so-called free rider argument is a complete load of, of nonsense, frankly. What, what these people are are really captive passengers. And every time we have talked to or introduced a bill that takes away this, quote, monopoly bargaining burden that unions say they have, the unions step in and they say, oh, no, no, wait a minute. We kind of enjoy this power. In fact, when in Michigan, in a case up there, in the, at the, pending at the Michigan Supreme Court, the big unions filed a brief about how they should continue to be able to manage the grievance process, and you shouldn't charge non-members for grievance representation, because they know once we break that apart, then the idea of exclusive representation falls apart, and they lose control of the bargaining unit. Mm-hmm. That's really the example that's really a, 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 a the kind of the genesis, if you will, of this so-called free rider argument that's really a captive passenger argument. Yeah, no, that, that again, it's that they could, you know, they have the they have this privilege of exclusive monopoly representation. They could they could seek changes to the law to not have the so-called burden. They choose not to because it gives them extra power. Exactly right. And every time we back in 1993, I think it was Dick Armey introduced the Voluntary Bargaining Act, which would have gone into the National Labor Relations Act and amended those provisions kind of at the root level and saying, look, you can represent the people you want to represent. But if someone else wants to be outside your your orbit, they can be. And of course, Lane Kirkland, then president of the AFL-CIO, immediately offered up opposition to Dick Armey's bill, maybe because it was just Dick Armey's bill, but because they understood the unbelievable control they have when they have this monopoly power. All right. Uh, so, Mark, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to let our listeners know? Well, I think the fight for individual freedom in the workplace continues. Uh, Taft-Hartley was a step in the right direction, but until American workers are free to choose whether or not they want to financially support a labor organization or a private organization that, quote, 
controls the conditions of employment, then the work is not finished. And, and actually, Michael, it's even bigger than just the, do, the dues and fees. It's about the forced representation. It's about the monopoly bargaining. And that's really the fundamental building block of all compulsory unionism in America. This idea that they can take away you, your right, Michael, to speak for yourself in the workplace. And then, to add insult to injury, in 23 states, they can force they, you to pay, pay for, for the <laughs> right for that violation. So we need to stop the PRO Act. We need to continue to push for the National Right to Work Act, which really we have introduced now in the United States House and Senate. It's a one-page bill, Michael. In this era of 2,300, 3,000-page bills, it's a one-page bill that does nothing, doesn't add a single word to federal law, simply repeals those provisions of the original Wagner Act and Taft-Hartley Act that allow union officials to force workers to pay dues or fees. It's it's good policy. Um, we'll get it done. We're going to pass more right-to-work laws, but the fight continues, and I'm glad to talk about it with you. All right. Well, thank you again to Mark Mix of National Rights Work for joining us. We will include uh, a link to the, uh, the National Rights Work Legal Defense Foundation in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.